We've been working <clears throat> through a series on salvation, and the big idea is that the more we look at salvation from different angles, hopefully like a brilliant diamond in different light, it sparkles in different ways. And so tonight we're looking at redemption. It's uh, the idea that God buys us out of slavery and sets us free. And I've got one other Bible reading. So I'd love you to turn to a small book in the Old Testament called the book of Hosea. So Hosea, it's, uh, it's the first book of the minor prophets. So if you hit Ezekiel and Daniel, keep going straight after Daniel. If you hit Joel, Amos, Habakkuk, Obadiah, go backwards. All right, And we're going to just read one chapter from Hosea, and that chapter is five verses long, so it's a short one. So this is Hosea chapter 3. All right, let me, let me read. The Lord said to me, Go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a lethek of barley, and I said to her, You must dwell as mine for many days. Forgive this strong language, but it's in the Bible, so we probably don't need to forgive it. Uh, It says, You shall not play the whore or belong to another man. So will I also be to you. For the children of Israel shall dwell many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or household gods. Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they shall come in fear to the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. All right, how about we pray? Let's uh, ask God for his help. Well, we pray tonight that you would speak to us through your word, that we would be in awe of what you've done to set us free. And we pray that you would help us to see that true freedom is found in knowing, trusting, following Jesus. We pray that we wouldn't live as slaves, but as servants of Christ. And we pray this in his name. Amen. I think it's fair to say our world is fairly polarised on a whole bunch of issues, but when it comes to the issue of slavery, I think we're in agreement that slavery is bad. Yeah? No dissent from the room. If you surveyed Australians, I think 99.9 something percent of Australians would all agree that slavery is bad. Because in our culture, freedom and autonomy and liberty are sacred things, aren't they? My freedom to choose what I want to do is a big deal in Australian society and Western society, and it shapes moral debates and decisions. So think about some, we might not disagree on slavery, but let's, let's think about some issues we, people in our society do disagree on. Take some really contentious topics like abortion or euthanasia. We often have this debate of personal autonomy versus the sanctity of, the, of life. My right to choose versus protecting life and preserving life. Now, this rise in the way in which we value freedom, please don't hear me say it's all bad. It's actually loads of good to it. It's further democracy. It helps to fight abuse, provides opportunity, particularly for people who are oppressed or vulnerable. 
But this desire for freedom affects us personally and it runs deep. I wonder, because I've done this, right? I've caught myself thinking this. I wonder if you've ever thought this. Someone in your family or in your workplace asks you to do something and the, the first thought that creeps through your head is, I'm not your slave. Has anyone else ever thought that? Is it just me? Maybe you've thought these words, you can't tell me what to do. Now, I've promised my wife in front of our friends and family in God that I would be her slave. I said I would love her as Christ loves the church. Now, if that doesn't mean serving her at every point, I don't know what does because Christ lays down his life in service of the church. And yet there is something in me that is often prone to elevate myself above others and not be willing to serve. It doesn't take a genius to consider that if everyone takes that attitude all the time, life will be marked by conflict and ultimately loneliness. If in your relationships you only want to be served, you'll either be very lonely or an abuser. Freedom in relationships must be limited in order for love to flourish. And yet this idea of personal freedom and autonomy, it's such a big deal in our society. It's such a big deal for people. I've met people who who have said, if I became a Christian, I'd have to change. I wouldn't be free to do as I please. There'd be things that I have to give up. And on one level, they're right. They're not completely right. See, Christians do what they please. It's just that what pleases them changes. But there are things that people need to give up if they come to faith in Christ. But what they often conclude is that therefore Christianity is a straitjacket that will limit me in all these horrible ways and render my life awful, horrible, miserable. There's some truth. Jesus says, obey me. He gives rules and boundaries. But they're wrong in the sense that following Jesus kills joy or a life of flourishing. Tonight, whether you're a Christian you've been a Christian for a long time, or whether you're checking out the Christian faith, I hope tonight you'll think through freedom, what it is, really is, and whether you've got it. That all of us will be thinking through, who who is my master? Who do I serve in my life? And tonight we're going to think through how Christ actually sets us free. So here's the plan. We're going to do some work on context, both of our culture and the book of Romans, to understand where Paul is coming from in Romans 6. We're going to think through real slavery, what real slavery is in Romans 6. And I just need to give a caveat tonight. If you're expecting that I will explain every aspect of Romans 6, you will go home very disappointed. It's a brilliant chapter. There's loads in it. We're going to touch on some points in it. The big ideas in it. So we're going to look at real slavery from Romans. We're going to look at how we're freed from Romans and Hosea. And then we're going to finish by thinking, what does a life of freedom according to the Bible actually look like? Okay, so that's where we're going. Context, what is real slavery, how we're freed, and what a life of freedom looks like. So let's let's start with our culture. We value freedom. We value individual autonomy. A hundred years ago, coming out of the Great War, World War I, the values of Australian society that were probably most prized were duty, service, and sacrifice. And yet today in our culture, it would be autonomy, liberty, and freedom. Now, here's what I'm not saying. I'm not saying the 1920s were the glory days where everything was great only all of the time. It wasn't. 
It was a mess. But our culture has changed. We're more wary of authority. Us Aussies are more cynical of power. We are a people who perpetually boo the Prime Minister at the cricket, no matter what, no matter who or he or she is. Trust has been broken and we're slow to trust. But true freedom, I think every person would have to agree that true freedom is never total. In fact, I'd argue that we don't want true freedom totally. Think about it. If everyone did as they pleased whenever they wanted, life would be insane, wouldn't it? Apply it to driving. We all leave here tonight and we get in our cars and we approach driving with complete and total freedom. We pick which side of the road we want to drive on. We pick how fast or slow we'll go. We pick which light colour means what we want it to mean. The reality is very few of us would actually get home alive. Apply it to electricians. They just wire your house however they feel like it. That sounds dangerous, like someone's going to get zapped. Apply it to doctors. They can treat you however they want. Forget the medical rule books. Forget medical ethics. They'll just do as they please. Is that what we want? What about my children? What if we said to my children, you can do how you can do whatever you want whenever you want? There's a good chance I would die in the next week. See, boundaries are actually good things, aren't they? They bring freedom and enjoyment and safety. Which means perhaps our issue as a culture is not so much with the idea of freedom, but that certain boundaries we don't like, certain boundaries great with people. We're all good with the idea that we agree that we drive on the left-hand side of the road. It would also be fair to say that I don't think all of us would agree on what road rules should stay in place. Would that be true? Some of us think that that roundabout should be a set of traffic lights and that set of traffic lights are roundabout. Some of us would say that the speed limit is too slow in that part of the world. We should be able to go faster. I still have a memory of my dad driving along on the phone, and this, this, this was not in the days of hands-free, right? So the phone is lodged in. He's on the phone and he's making a sandwich whilst driving. It was very impressive. <laughs> I've never tried it. I don't recommend it. But he's probably one of those guys who could have said, oh, listen, I'm pretty capable cop pulls him over, he'd probably go, okay, yeah, you probably shouldn't be on the phone whilst making a sandwich and driving a car all at the same time. See, our problem is not boundaries, but perhaps specific boundaries. And when it comes to Jesus, could it be that it's not simply that Jesus robs us of all our freedom, but it could be that certain things that Jesus says about how we should live our lives grate on us. It could be what he says about money or sex or freedom could be about forgiveness or church. It could be the cost of following him. There are certain things that we don't like, which means our issues as a culture and as individuals are actually less about the big picture of freedom and more about who reigns in our life, who rules, who guides, who leads, who gets to say what you and I do. It's that crutch moment when confronted with an opportunity to do something where we think, I'm not your slave. And so 
before we turn to what true slavery, real slavery is, let's, let's catch up on Romans because we're really picking up Romans in the middle of an argument. Last week we looked a bit at Romans 3 and the, the idea that God declares people righteous because of faith in Jesus, that it's a free gift of grace. Now chapter 1 to 3 is just an argument that says all of us have sinned, all of us have rebelled against God and worshipped created things rather than the creator. There's no one righteous. People are only declared righteous. All have sinned, fallen short of the glory of God, but are justified, declared righteous freely by his grace. And then the next line in uh, Romans chapter 3 is through the redemption that came by Jesus. And we looked last week at the sacrifice that Christ made on the cross, that he's treated as the guilty one, even though he's innocent, so that we, the guilty ones, might be treated as innocent, declared righteous. Now in chapter 5, one of the results of being declared righteous is that we now have peace with God, which we're going to look at more next week. But at the end of chapter 5, there is this section from verse 12 to the end where it starts to talk about, uh, theologians call it realms, this idea of realm transfer. That is, when a person isn't a Christian, they're in the realm of Adam and law and sin and death. But when a person puts their faith in Christ, they're transformed, transferred sorry, out of that realm into the realm of grace and life and obedience and Christ. You either belong to Adam or Christ, to law or grace, to death or to life. It's not a sci-fi thing. It's not like a beam of light flows into your life and your soul somehow transfers into some different realm. But rather, when a person puts their trust in Jesus, they're so united to him that they no longer belong to those old ways of life. They now belong to Christ, that grace is bigger and better than sin. And so at the start of chapter 6, Paul is anticipating an argument. And here's the argument. If you tell people that they're saved by grace, not by works, they're saved by the free gift of God, not by being really, really Jewish or being really, really good, won't people just be really, really bad? Won't people do whatever they like and then just say, how cool is grace? Grace just means I can now do whatever I like. And so have a look at chapter 6, verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? And verse 2 is so clear, by no means. May it never be. No, 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 Paul says. And his argument at the start of chapter 6 is that if you've tasted grace, it must change you. That when a person trusts Jesus, it says here that we are baptised into Christ and baptised into his death. It's strange language, but essentially what it means is when a person believes in Jesus, they become so united to him that his death is like theirs and his resurrection is like theirs. That if he died for our sin and rose to new life, that we too are called to put sin behind us and live the new life that he's given us. Now, I said we need to look at what real slavery is, and there are two really key verses in this passage that point us to what real slavery is. The first one is verse 6, but I'll read from verse 5 to give some context. If we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. So we're united to Christ by faith. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing 
so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. So when a person trusts in Jesus, it's like they've died along with Christ and they've risen with Christ and they're no longer enslaved to sin. That's verse 6. Have a look at verse 15 and 16. Same kind of question, right, as at the start of the chapter. What then are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. Here's what the Bible is teaching. All of us, by nature, are born into this world enslaved by sin. We just can't help it. And all of us choose sin. All of us have offered ourselves as slaves to sin by obeying sin. So... Here's how this plays out. All of us have a propensity towards particular sins. Isn't that true? There are sins in my life that I have a propensity towards, sin that I struggle with more than other stuff. And sometimes we look at other people who struggle with particular sins that aren't an issue for us and we think worse of them. We think, why don't you just not do that? Because it's actually hard for people, all of us, have a propensity towards sin. And whilst we can grow and change and improve by nature, we are still captive. We have no capacity to free ourselves. And here's how we know this true. Just try and go a day being perfect. Just try. Try and nail it for a day. Try and not have a selfish thought or a rude thought. I promise you, you can't do it. And if you can, if you do, you will be so impressed with yourself that you will have committed the sin of pride. So you'll get to the end of the day and you'll go, I am amazing, I crushed it. Ah, like you just can't do it. By nature, we are slaves to sin. Sometimes we desperately don't want to sin and we still do. But we also choose it. We choose to offer ourselves as obedient slaves to sin. This is what it's saying. So the person who uses their freedom and autonomy to seek money or fame or success or beauty or their reputation or the perfect family, they're making choices, the Bible says, they're slaves to those things that they're obeying. They're slaves to money. They're slaves to self. They're slaves to pleasure or comfort or status beauty That is, we all have a functional master, someone or something that we serve, something that we look to to find security and satisfaction and significance. Now, there are some obvious ones that are kind of like caricatures of this. So picture the person who is addicted to plastic surgery and they have surgery after surgery after surgery in pursuit of beauty. And we all know what they look like at the end, don't they? Like they look deformed. What they sought, they didn't get. They're a slave. But there's also less obvious ones. One of the common forms of slavery that I see, I have young kids who are in primary school, is I see the slavery of parents whose master is their kid's success. Their kids have to do everything and be excellent at everything. And so they literally spend their life driving their kid from thing to thing to thing. 
It's a good desire to want your kids to do well, but there is a point at which it becomes slavery. In fact, the Bible says if you build your life on anything other than Christ, you're a slave. There's an old Bob Dylan song that says you've got to serve somebody. No matter who you are, you've got to serve somebody. It may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're going to serve somebody. All of us serve in some way. And the end result? Have a look at verse 20 of chapter 6. He says, For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regards to righteousness. That is, you could do whatever you liked. Verse 21, But what fruit were you getting at the time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. You see, these masters that we serve, they don't save or satisfy. They actually destroy you know, think of, think of the woman who is pursuing beauty through persistent plastic surgery. Does she end up beautiful? No. She ends up deformed. I used to work in schools and those parents who idolised their kids, who made their kids' achievement the ultimate goal, two common things happened. When their children failed, they went nuts at their kids. Because their kid's success was their God and they just, turned, they just discovered that their God sucked. Their God was no good. So they either go nuts at their kids or alternatively when, when their precious cherub doesn't end up in the A class and they believe that their kid is the most brilliant child to ever walk the planet, they go absolutely nuts at the school. Because who do they serve? They serve the God of success. This child exists to make me feel good. When my kid is successful and doing well, I feel great. I feel secure. I feel safe and significant. And when when my kid fails or when the school says, actually, your child really is in the B maths class because the 30 kids in the A maths class did much better in maths than your child, their world crumbles. And it's not just the extreme crazy parent, and it's not just the extreme plastic surgeon person. All of us do this. All of us offer ourselves as slaves to created things. Now, at this point, you might be thinking, okay, so that's that's bad for us, but why is it bad if we're born slaves? Why is it our fault? If all of us are born and it's inherent for us to offer ourselves as slaves to sin, why is... Why is that our fault? The answer is that it's not simply in our nature, but that we love it. And it's it's here I want us to turn to Hosea. So turn with me to Hosea, because in it we see a picture of slavery to sin. We see slavery again, but we also see how we're freed. Now let me give you some context. We read five verses from Hosea chapter 3. In Hosea chapter 1, we get introduced to Hosea, the word of the Lord that came to Hosea in the days of a particular bunch of kings. So Hosea is a prophet, think holy man of God, and God speaks to Hosea and gives him a job that you would not expect God to give to the prophet of Israel. Uh, Let me read verse 2. When the Lord first spoke to Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go, take to yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. Hosea, go and marry a prostitute. That's what God says. Go and marry a woman who's going to be unfaithful. And Hosea does. Verse 3, So he went and took Goma, the daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. 
The first son gets the name Jezreel, and this son is meant to be a word to Israel that says, you're going to be defeated in the valley of Jezreel. Poor kid. Look at verse 4. Oh, sorry, verse 6. She conceived again and bore a daughter. Do you notice what word is not there? The word that's not there is him. She didn't didn't bear him a daughter. It's not his kid. It's some other bloke's. And what's the name of this kid? Call her name No Mercy. For I will have no mercy on Israel. Verse 8, when she'd weaned no mercy, she conceived and bore a son. Not him a son, a son. Someone else's kid. And the Lord said, call his name not my people. Those poor kids. They would have, they would have needed some counselling, I reckon. But they're this lived out parable. Why not my people? For you are not my people and I am not your God. What's the point? God is saying, I'm like you, Hosea, and Israel is like Gomer. I married you, I made a covenant with you, and you have been unfaithful. You, you have left me and worshipped other gods. It's a picture of unfaithfulness in marriage that's meant to be a bigger picture of spiritual adultery, that when we offer ourselves as servants of sin, as slaves of sin, when we worship things other than God, when we build our lives on something other than the Creator, it's a picture of spiritual adultery. Now, we're not Israel, are we? There's not a neat parallel between the covenant people of God in the Old Testament and an average Aussie. But we are all guilty of treating God in the same way. He's our maker. We exist because of him. We reject his love. We run to other gods. We make created things ultimate. And so they're this lived out parable of God's love for a faithless people. But flick over to the end of chapter 2. There's this wonderful promise, the last verse of chapter 2. God says it's not always going to be like this. Things will change. God says, I will have mercy on no mercy, and I will say to not my people, you are my people, and he shall say, you are my God. God says, one day I'm going to restore it. And then we get to chapter 3. And I just want you to imagine this. I want you to have a holy imagination of what God asks Hosea to do. The Lord says to me, go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. You might be thinking, what's God got against raisins? I quite like them. Uh, I don't think God has a particular issue with dried fruit. I think the cakes of raisins were actually used in an idolatrous, cultish practice. So look at verse 2. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a lethek of barley. The holy man of Israel goes down to the red light district and he buys back his wife. The price is a ransom price. You might have heard the word ransom and thought that's when you pay back a kidnapper. In fact, I know most of you are too young for this reference, but I hear ransom and I think Mel Gibson shouting, give me back my son. Some of you don't know who Mel Gibson is. Uh, just says how old I am. But in the ancient world, ransom is not the payment to set someone free from a kidnapper. A ransom price sets a slave free. 
Redemption has got nothing to do with a coupon that you redeem. Redemption in the ancient world is pay a ransom price so that someone who is a slave is now free. Someone who is a slave is bought out. And so Hosea goes to the red light district with his 15 shekels of silver and a big sack of barley and he buys back his bride from the pimp. And I want you to notice this. This is not simply an act of duty. Have a look at verse 1. Go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress. Do you see the implication? The implication is that Hosea loved her in the first place when he married her, even though she was already an adulterous woman. And God says, go and love her again. Go and love her again. Now, if you, haven't, if you can't see it, I hope that you'll see that Hosea's act of redemption, the ransom price he pays for his bride to buy her out of her slavery, is meant to be a glimpse of Christ. Christ leaves the glory of heaven and heads to the red light district that's earth. He comes to buy us, to redeem us out of our slavery to sin, to set to set people free who have given themselves to slavery of sin, who've scorned his love, who've mocked and belittled him. And he doesn't pay with barley or silver. He pays with his blood. He pays with his life. That's what we're told in Romans chapter 6, that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so we would no longer be enslaved to sin. You might have heard this famous verse from Mark's Gospel, for the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a, as a ransom, as a payment to set us free, to buy us from slavery to sin. And the result, have a look, flick back to chapter 6 of Romans with me and have a look at verse 22. If the result of slavery to sin is death, verse 22 says, But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification. That's a growing, gradual righteousness. And its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So Christ sets us free from the power and penalty of sin. He makes us slaves of God rather than slaves of sin. And he gives us eternal life. Which means none of us by any means can get ourselves out from the power and penalty of sin. Only Christ redeems. On the cross, Christ pays the ransom price. He pays our penalty in our place. He covers the unpayable debt and sets us free. If you're here tonight and you're checking out the Christian faith, you're not yet a Christian, can I just encourage you? The Bible says we can't save ourselves. It actually says that none of us are free. We've all got to serve somebody. You're either a slave of sin or a slave of Christ. And a life built on anything other than Christ is slavery to sin that leads to death. And so if you're not a believer tonight, I just want to encourage you to think through who will you serve? Which master will you serve? And I really want to encourage you to think through 
Will your master die for you? Will your master love you again when you fail? Will your master serve you? Will your master pursue you despite your mistakes? Jesus said the thief comes only to kill and steal and destroy, but I have come that you may have life and life to the full. We're all going to serve someone. The question is whether your master will serve you or whether your master will take from you. And so if you're not yet a Christian, I want to encourage you to ask for forgiveness for your pursuit of sin and to trust him knowing that he offers freedom today, that he's paid the price to set you free from the power and penalty of sin, that he offers eternal life. So real slavery... It's being trapped under the power and penalty of sin. And real freedom, it comes through Christ who pays the redemption price and saves us out of slavery to sin and makes us his slaves. And the question then I think for us to finish, well, what does this life of freedom look like? It could look like to some, you might read Romans 6 and go, okay, oh gosh, If I've been set free from the power and penalty of sin, does that mean that a Christian is someone, when they put their faith in Jesus, they suddenly become perfect? Because look at verse 14 of chapter 6. He says, For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. Sin will have no dominion, no power, no rule over you. Does it mean that we're supposed to be immediately perfect? Because a lot of us are sitting here going, Gosh, I am not that. Well, no, it doesn't mean that. But because we are redeemed, grace is more powerful than sin. That grace empowers our ability to say no to sin. Throughout the passage, he talks about sanctification, that is your gradual growing in righteousness, that when you've been set free from sin, you'll just start to change bit by bit rather than suddenly arrive at perfection. And if you wrestle with this, the fact that we're set free from sin and yet we still struggle with sin, I just want to encourage you, you're not alone. Your pastor struggles with this. Your pastors and elders and deacons struggle with this. We all struggle with this. In fact, what's amazing is that the writer of this chapter struggles with this. See, in chapter 7, Paul talks a bit about his struggle with sin. Flick over to chapter 7 with me. In verse 15, Paul's talking about the relationship between law and sin. In verse 15, he says, I don't understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing that I hate. In chapter 7, we see that Paul wrestles with his sin nature. He says, sin lives within me. I want to be holy, but I do the wrong thing. Have you ever had that experience? You didn't want to be short with your kids or your wife or with your family member or whoever. You didn't want to be rude in that way. You didn't want to say that thing, but it just came out and you said it. And you feel regret. You didn't want to turn to watch that thing that you know you shouldn't, but you just did it and you regret it. Paul had a wrestle too. And at the end of chapter 7, he points to Christ as saviour. You see, freedom from sin, what Christ has done leads to change. Sometimes that change is slow. So let's think, how should our life of freedom look? I want to give you one big idea with lots of possibilities. I think the clear application of the passage is verse 12. Have a look with me. He says, Let not sin therefore. The therefore is really important. Whenever you see a therefore in the Bible, ask what the therefore is there for. And the therefore is there to point us back to what Christ has done on the cross. So he says, 
Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Don't present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who've been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. Here's a very simple summary of what he's saying. Don't serve sin. Don't be a slave of sin. Be a slave of Christ. He's saying be who Christ made you to be. If you're united to him and he's set you free, then live free. If you're no longer a slave to sin, stop living as if you are. Put sin off. Put holiness and righteousness on. Now here's the challenge with this. It's so easy to say that, isn't it? The application of this passage is that we should sin less. We should be more righteous. That's easy to say. It's really hard to do, isn't it? Some of us, we're Christians and we feel trapped in sin and we feel an immense amount of guilt and shame. And we come to church and we find it really hard because at church we're all supposed to be holy and good all the time only ever. And so we come to church and we put on our smiley faces and we pretend that we've got everything together and we go home and we wallow in our guilt and shame again for another week. Sometimes we don't come to church because we just can't bear to, to lie another week again. If that's you, I just want to beg you to see that God loves you. He knew what he was buying when he bought you. Hosea knew what he was getting when he married Goma. God told him who to pick. He knew exactly what he was getting and he loved her. And when she ran off and had kids with other blokes, God said, go and love her again. And he went back and he loved her again. And it's meant to be this profound picture of God's love for us. If you are wallowing and struggling in sin, know that he loves you. And let that change the way you respond. Let that shape the way you think about your sin. Don't let sin abound. Don't trash his grace. But bring your sin into the light. Confess it. He's already seen it. He already knows. Ask for forgiveness. He's ready to give it. Seek help and accountability from, from a brother or a sister. And let grace drive you. Guilt will make you stop for a few days. Grace will change your life. He's calling you to live out who he's made you to be. I reckon for a lot of us, we're not really necessarily feeling trapped or guilty in a particular area of sin. We're more likely to be apathetic. We're like people who are released slaves who've put off some sin but wander in and out amongst different masters. If someone watched your life, if they watched how you speak to your family members and the thoughts that you have and how you drive and, and they looked at your credit card statements and your bank account balances, if someone really watched your life, who would they say is your master? Would it be evident that you're a slave of Christ? You see, a slave obeys his master. A slave listens. A slave does the work of a master. Well, think about Goma. A redeemed wife should love her husband and be faithful to him. And as I've thought about what it looks like for me in my life, I've come back to the conclusion over and over again that I'm prone to just be my own master 
I'm prone to serve me. I'm prone to want others to serve me, my comfort and my wants. I mean, some of us, money is our master. Some of us, it's all about the comfy retirement and the loads of holidays or travel is our master or a reputation is our master or kids are our master or our marks at uni are our master. There's all sorts of things that we serve. But Christ didn't save us from slavery to sin so we could turn from serving one sin to another. He saved us that we would serve him. In verse 19 of chapter 6, it says, I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. There's a lot of big words there. Here's what he's saying. Remember how you used to be really zealous about pursuing sin? Be equally, if not more, zealous about pursuing Christ. Remember the enthusiasm with which you used to pursue money or self or whatever? Be even more zealous and enthusiastic for pursuing Christ. Pursue Christ like the person addicted to plastic surgery pursues beauty. Pursue Christ like the parents who drag their kids from thing to thing to thing to thing to thing, afternoon after afternoon after afternoon. Pursue Christ like that. You see, we're not saved out of sin into nothing, but we're saved out of sin into slavery of Christ. Consider all the things you do in life, whether it be work or driving or school or eating or talking or cleaning or not cleaning or the TV you watch or the shopping that you do or the time with your friends or the time with your family. Do you do those things as a slave of Christ? Is your life marked by service? by putting yourself last. See, a slave is the last one to go to bed. A slave is the last one to eat and the last one to sit down. And Christ said that's greatness. The Christians who've been saved from slavery to sin, they become servants of all. Perhaps tonight you just need reminding that Christ became a slave for you that he served, that he left the glory of heaven to die a death to set you free from the power and penalty of sin. Maybe you need to be reminded that that was an act loaded with love. See, guilt won't change you, but grace will. Guilt will get you to the point where you go, I need grace, but grace is the thing that brings about lifelong transformation. When you realise that Christ's sacrifice is loaded with love to set you free, it actually gives you power to serve others in your family. That when you want to sit down, you don't because you know you need to serve others. It gives you the power to serve in your workplace and serve in your church, to serve wherever. And we do it not out of a sense of drudgery and duty, but we do it like Christ, loaded with love. We serve because we are loved. And the truth is that all humans serve something. We serve what we love. We're slaves to our loves. And when you realise that Christ loved you again, when that melts your heart, that changes the way you live, that bit by bit you might become more of a servant of others. It's going to be hard. We're going to struggle. Sometimes it's going to be two steps forward and two steps back. 
Sometimes it's going to be two steps forward and one step back. But Christ makes it possible to grow. His grace makes change possible. A world where everyone seeks their own kingdom and freedom is pretty awful. Yeah? But imagine if we were a community of people who put our freedom aside in order to serve one another. Imagine how different we look to the world. Imagine how differently we drive. We'd let people in front of us. Imagine how different we'd queue just at shops. We'd be patient. We'd buy less toilet paper. We'd serve one another. We'd be zealous to be slaves of Christ and of others because we know what it means to be served. We'd be eager to listen to him and obey him and repent and grow. We'd be eager to serve and put the needs of others before ourselves. Wouldn't Christ look spectacular? You see, in some ways we have a choice. We have a choice between the slavery of freedom that our culture so prizes or the freedom of slavery to Christ. Where in obeying him, our lives line up with the way that God has designed the world to work and in it we find that there is joy and life and flourishing. Christian, you've been set free, so let not sin reign in your mortal bodies. It's worth it. It's hard work. Because the wages of sin is death. And slavery to sin is not worth it. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let me pray. Lord, we thank you that on the cross, Christ paid the ransom price to set us free from our slavery to sin. Thank you that he redeemed us, he bought us. And thank you that it wasn't simply an act of drudgery or duty. It wasn't just the right thing to do, but it was loaded with love. And we thank you that you love us again. May that melt us tonight. May it grow in us a longing to be slaves of Christ. Thank you that... Thank you that Christ is the master who dies for us, that Christ is the master who serves every other master in the world takes. But thank you that Christ gave his life and he gives us himself. Lord, if there's people here tonight struggling with guilt, they feel trapped in sin, help them to know that you love them, that you already know what they're doing, and that you're, you love them again and again and again. And may that encourage us to be people who are honest about where we're at, honest to repent and change. If we're tonight apathetic, remind us of how we are prone to be spiritually adulterous and help us marvel afresh at your love for us in the cross. And may sin not reign in our mortal bodies. May we be zealous to serve, zealous to be slaves of Christ, knowing it's for our joy and our good and ultimately the end of it is eternal life. Thank you that you are a God who is gracious to us. You don't treat us as we deserve. May that bit by bit transform us more and more into the likeness of Christ. We pray this in his name for his glory. Amen.